So, where have we got to so far in Mark's Gospel? Well, right at the beginning, Mark introduced us to what he was going to say. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That quote that Mark uh, introduces as being from the prophet Isaiah is partly from the prophet Malachi and partly from the prophet Isaiah. And in the two different contexts, it signifies, on the one hand, God coming to judge, and on the other hand, God coming to save his people. If you want to see more of that, uh, get Dan's first sermon in the series, because he goes into that in some detail, and I think it's helpful. And that is basically what we have seen. Jesus has come onto the scene, he has been preaching, he has been teaching, he has been calling disciples, he's been attracting huge crowds, he's been healing people and casting out demons, but he has also started to come across those who would stand in his way. And he has started to have sharp disagreements, controversies, arguments, and he is starting actually to do that work of judging people as they, in fact, judge him for what he is doing. So the controversy started uh, a couple of weeks ago when Jesus claimed to forgive the sins of a paralyzed man and the Jewish religious teachers were shocked. Only God can forgive sins. And then the controversies continued to build last week when Jesus was, was fraternizing with sinful people, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And again, the religious leaders are scandalized. Jesus' answer is, these are the people I came here for. Those who know they need saving. Like a doctor, I've come for the sick, not for the healthy. And the controversy is going to carry on in the three little stories that we see today. And actually, it is going to build and build and build until we get to a point where people are plotting to actually kill Jesus. So what I want to do is uh, look at each of the three little stories. We've got one about fasting and then two about Sabbath observance. Um, and look, let's be honest, both of those things, fasting and Sabbath observance, are not a particularly big deal in today's world or even in today's church. So we're going to have to get a little bit into a first century Jewish mindset to understand these arguments and get what's going on. And that might mean that it seems for quite a lot of this talk that we are stuck in the first century and it's not entirely clear what this has to do with us today. Stick with me. I think it's going to make sense at the end. If it doesn't, you'll have learned something about the first century, and that might come in useful someday, you never know. So, here we go. Stories in turn. Fasting, Sabbath 1, Sabbath 2, and then we're going to look at the overarching themes and see what we can pick up for us today, what things are going to be particularly useful for us. So the first story is fasting. Now, fasting in the first century for, for Jews usually meant going for a day or sometimes longer without any food or drink. 
So, so nothing passes your lips. Uh, there's one fast commanded in the Old Testament. You fast on the Day of Atonement. That's the only fast that's definitely prescribed in the Old Testament. But we see fasting uh, used in lots of different other uh, scenarios as well. Uh, by the time that Jesus is around, some of the Jews have taken to fasting two days a week, every week. Um, as well as certain more specific fasts on particular occasions. That seems pretty hardcore to me. Um, And the fasting that they were doing basically had three dimensions to it. One was they were mourning. Fasting was an expression of mourning. So there was a big fast, particularly uh, on the anniversary of the destruction of Solomon's temple, when the exile began, when the people of Israel lost the kingdom, and everything seemed to go wrong for them. They still observed that at the time of Jesus, because although many of them had been back in the land for a long time, the kingdom of David had not been restored. The exile, in some senses, still went on. There was an element of mourning. There was also uh, an element of repentance. So often, fasting expressed sorrow for sin either the sin of the nation of Israel corporately or some individual sin of which the person was conscious. Fasting was an element of repentance, of saying, yeah, I am sorry for this. I take this sin seriously. And fasting also contained an element of longing. You know, it goes with those other two things. When you're mourning the lost kingdom, and feeling sorrow for the sin that caused that judgment to happen to Israel, you're also looking forward and longing for the day when God would restore the kingdom, when God would move again to save his people. So fasting is pretty serious business. And actually, if you think about it, Those three things really go to the heart of what it meant to be one of God's faithful people in the period between the exile and the coming of Jesus. To look back on what was lost, to repent of the sin that lost it, and to long for God's appearing. That was repentance and faith. And so we come to a point were the Pharisees, they were a strict religious sect of the Jews, and the disciples of John the Baptist, who were relative newcomers on the scene, but by all accounts were pretty serious about religious things. They were both fasting. Jesus' disciples are not fasting. What does it mean? Are Jesus' followers not very serious about faith? Are they not up for this hard work of fasting? Here's Jesus' response. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. An immediate, huge claim is being made here by Jesus. 
He is putting himself in the absolute center of everything. Um, if you uh, have uh, been married, you'll have noticed that when you were the bride or the groom, you were the center of attention for the day. Pretty awesome, wasn't it? The bridegroom is the one the day is all about. Now, put a qualifier on that. The bride's quite important too. But by making himself the bridegroom, Jesus is saying, I am at the center of this. These friends and disciples of mine, they can't fast right now. Because I, the bridegroom, I am here. And right now it is all about me. It's actually more than that, though. Jesus isn't just picking up the image of the bridegroom out of nowhere because he was looking for, you know, somebody who was quite important. He picks this image of the bridegroom straight out of the Old Testament, which frequently portrays God as Israel's husband, as Israel's bridegroom. One example, Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, God is saying, I am going to restore you from your exile. Israel has been ex- in exile for centuries by the time of Jesus. But Isaiah foretold that God would restore them from exile, and he used language like this. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In the verse before that, he has said, Though you were unmarried, I will marry you. See, the bridegroom in the history and the story of Israel, that is God. That is the role that God plays. So see the massive claim that Jesus is making. When he says, my friends don't fast because they are with the bridegroom, He's saying, your fasting is all about mourning for the lost kingdom, repenting of your sins which led to its loss, looking longingly forward for the kingdom to come. They're not fasting because I am here. The kingdom that you lost, the kingdom that you have longed for, is here in person. That is a huge, huge claim for Jesus to make. He is saying, because I am here, the mourning is gone. The guilt is gone. The looking longingly forward is gone. Because it is all here and present in me. If I said something like that, uh, that would be an extraordinarily arrogant thing to say. If I said, hey, you know all those promises that God made centuries ago? All that stuff, a new creation, a new covenant, new marriage for Israel, the undoing of all the hurts of the past, the removal of guilt. Here it is. That would be hideous blasphemy. 
and fairly absurd. But that is what Jesus is saying. And he backs it up with these other two images. He says, you don't sew an unshrunken patch onto an old garment that is torn, or it will just ruin it further. My home economics is very limited, uh, and doesn't allow me to tell you what that is all about, but I get the gist and the flavor. And he says, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, that is no good. The wine in the wineskin will be destroyed. I know a bit more about wine than I do about sewing, and so I can tell you that the point is that new wine is unfermented, and if you put it into an old wineskin that has hardened, it will burst it as the fermentation process goes on. What is the point of the images? The point is that if it is true that in Jesus, Israel's bridegroom has come near, the kingdom has come, if that is true, then a fundamentally new thing is happening, and it will not fit within the old structures. What Jesus is offering, then, is not just a, a little bolt-on for the old Jewish ways of doing things. He is offering something new. Think about Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not call them to mind. See, I am doing something new, said God looking towards the restoration of his people. And here it is, that new thing. It's Jesus. Now, none of those replies, none of that talk, is designed to endear Jesus to the religious leaders with whom he's speaking. And so the controversy rolls on. There was fasting. Let me just make one note before we leave fasting. Jesus doesn't pass any negative comments on the practice of fasting. In fact, he says, my followers will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And it is natural and right that Christians now do sometimes fast. Because once again, the bridegroom is away from us and we wait for him to come back. So Jesus is not anti-fasting. He is just saying, you religious leaders, you have misunderstood the time that it is. You have not seen that the hope of Israel is coming true now in me. Okay, fasting. Sabbath 1, um, to distinguish it from the second one, which is going to be Sabbath 2. The uh, disciples uh, are walking through a field on the Sabbath, that is, the seventh day of the week when the law commands them to rest. And uh, they are hungry, presumably, so they start to pick some grain. Don't fancy eating raw grain myself, but that's their business. They're picking some grain. The Pharisees jump on them. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Sabbath is absolutely fundamental in first century Jewish religion. It is a day of rest every week. Every Saturday, they rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments, central to the Old Testament. The prophets regularly 
pile on to Israel in the Old Testament for neglecting the Sabbath and condemn them for it. It is a big deal. By the time we get to the first century, lots of peripheral rules have sprung up just to make sure, make doubly sure, that nobody is breaking the Sabbath. So, there's lots of uh, discussion about what constitutes work, because you can't do work on the Sabbath. Walking too far is work. It is not entirely clear whether that what the disciples are doing here actually was breaking the Sabbath. Certainly the Pharisees, who, let's remember, were one of the strictest sects of Judaism, they interpreted it as work. As far as they are concerned, the disciples are breaking the law of Moses. And that is serious because it means they are breaking the law of God. So if the, if the question in the fasting section was something like, aren't Jesus' followers serious about God? The question in this section is really something like, does Jesus despise God's law? Aren't Jesus' followers going to keep God's law? Jesus' response is twofold um, and fascinating, and I could talk about them for a very long time, but I won't. The first one is that he tells a story from the Old Testament. I don't know how well you know your Old Testament or how familiar you are with the days of Abiathar the high priest. Let me just fill you in. The boy David had been anointed as God's king. But Saul was still on the throne. And so David was always in danger of his life. At this particular point, David has been in and out of Saul's court, but is now very definitely out of favor. If Saul catches him, he will kill him. David has to jump out of a window and run for it. He doesn't take anything with him. He gets to the priest city of Nob, and he asks, well, yeah, that's really what the city's called, and he asks, do you have, A, a sword, they give him a sword, and B, anything to eat? They don't have anything to eat that he can take away quickly, except the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence was baked daily and laid out in the tabernacle, at that point, no temple yet, in front of God. Is all this sufficiently obscure for you? And only the priests could eat it. Still, Abiathar the priest allows David to take the bread of the presence, and he takes it away, eats it, gives it to those who are with him. Why is Jesus telling this story? At one level, you might think it works like this. It could be the Pharisees come up to Jesus and his disciples and say, why aren't you keeping the law? Look at you, rubbing the grave. And Jesus responds, hey, even David didn't keep the law all the time. Give me a break. If it was that, it would be A, a pretty dubious argument. And B, it would prove the Pharisees right. Jesus has no respect for the law. 
But I don't think that is what he's saying, obviously. I think he's picked his example very carefully. This is David, God's anointed king. Maybe not yet recognized as king, not yet on his throne, but the Lord's anointed. Jesus is not saying, hey, it's okay to break the law sometimes. But he is saying, I am God's anointed. And like David, there are some things that are okay for me. Keep that in your mind. Because then he makes a second point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This seems pretty obvious, really. God doesn't need the Sabbath. God doesn't need their Sabbath observance. What is it to God whether they work or don't work? The Sabbath is given by God for humanity, for our benefit. So Jesus is saying, not only have you not realized who I am, but you've also fundamentally misunderstood what the Sabbath was always about. It was never about, hey, do this and you'll impress God. It was always about, take a day of rest, trusting God, not your own work, to keep you alive and keep you going, and you will be blessed. Jesus is effectively saying to the Pharisees, which bit of that have my disciples violated by grabbing a few grains as they walk through a field? And then he rounds it off with this. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And this is a bombshell. A bombshell. When Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he is invariably talking about himself. Now the logic is this. The Sabbath was made for man. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So is important because Jesus is now making a new claim. He is now saying, I am like the new Adam, the one who enjoyed perfect Sabbath. Not Sabbath as a restriction on his activities, but Sabbath as a joyful release into the presence and worship of God. This is big. Jesus is saying, I am new humanity. This is it in me. I am real humanity doing what real humanity ought to do. Because real humanity is Lord of the Sabbath. It's only broken humanity that makes Sabbath a hard bondage and becomes a slave to Sabbath. Sinful humanity does that. Real humanity loves and enjoys the Sabbath and is Lord of the Sabbath. And of course, you can't help hearing it the other way as well. Who made the Sabbath? Who rules the Sabbath? God himself. Again, none of this is designed to appease the Pharisees. The Pharisees were concerned 
that Jesus wasn't paying close enough attention to the law because he was letting his disciples pluck some grains. In response, Jesus says, Don't worry, I'm God's anointed king, just like David. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, just like Adam. And I'm God who made the Sabbath in the first place. They're not going to go, oh, okay, that's cool. Okay, Sabbath 2. Sabbath 2. By this point, we are in the middle of a conspiracy. Jesus goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath, the gathering place for worship and for hearing God's word. There's a man with a shriveled hand. Now, there are people in this synagogue who are there deliberately watching Jesus. We're no longer in a place where these people are interested to see what Jesus is like. They have made their judgment of Jesus, and they just want to trap him. They are looking for a reason to accuse him. And what they're particularly looking at is, will Jesus heal this man? No doubt they've heard that Jesus has healed many people before. Sometimes even on the Sabbath. And so they are watching. Will he do it this time? Because if so, we will accuse him of Sabbath breaking. Because healing people, even healing people miraculously, is work. This time they don't ask him a question. Jesus asks them a question. He knows what they're thinking. What is it lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now the way Jesus phrases the question makes it pretty clear what he thinks the answer is. But they don't answer him anything at all because those aren't even the categories that they're working in. Is it okay to do good or evil? They're not even thinking in terms of good or evil. Is it okay to save life or to kill? They're not even thinking in terms of human life. All they're interested in at this stage is their religious scruples and their plot to catch Jesus. Can I suggest, um, by way of just a passing comment, that if our religious observance has stopped having anything really to do with questions of good and evil, or questions of human life and death, it's just become an empty and pointless religiosity. If you're not connected to humanity in that way, unlikely that you're connected to God either. It's by way of passing comment. Jesus' response is anger. Anger. Because these people who seem so concerned about God's law do not care at all about one of God's people. They are very happy to let a sick man go on suffering so long as the Sabbath is not broken. And that is not the kingdom of God that Jesus comes to bring. He's not just angry, he also heals the man. 
So we see, again, judgment and salvation. Those who need healing are healed. Those who think they've got it all right, and God is definitely on their side, are judged. The end of the passage (coughs) raises a pretty unlikely alliance. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now the Pharisees, I said, ultra-strict religious sect. The Herodians compromised people who worked alongside the Romans and propped up the puppet government of Herod. These are not people who would naturally get along. But probably the point is that the Pharisees don't have the power to kill anyone, really. Whereas the Herodians do. And both of them see a threat in Jesus. So they come together. Now, this is all massively important in the storyline of Mark's Gospel. Because all this religious debate is ultimately what is going to lead to these groups of people conspiring to have Jesus put to death. And at the end of the day, Mark is going to say that was why Jesus came. Because ultimately, he judges and saves by dying on the cross. By taking penalty for sin for those who will trust in him, for those who know they need him and exposing the self-righteousness of those who turn away from him but what about us I don't know when you last had a debate about fasting Um, I actually have had one not too long ago Um, but I guess that's quite unusual I don't know when you've last had a debate about Sabbath observance yeah mm, not that recently these things are not big in our minds but the way that Jesus responds to these debates tells us a huge amount about who he is and who he is for us today I was chatting to um, a student a few weeks ago, uh, wouldn't have called himself a Christian, but was interested. One of the things he said at the end of our chat was, do you know, up until today, I assumed that it was mainly about God, and Jesus was kind of second. He thought that basically all religions were the same, because they all had God in them. And then Jesus was like the the added bolt-on bit that Christians had and some other people didn't have. Not too important. Like important, but not central. It just won't work with with the responses that Jesus is giving to questions in passages like this. Because he is putting himself at the center. He is saying... God's kingdom, God's presence, God's rule is all about me. 
absolutely all about me. When Jesus is present, God's kingdom is present. God's salvation is present. There can't be any fasting. When Jesus is walking, we see the one who rules the Sabbath because he is both God, its creator, and true humanity in one person. Jesus is the center, the center of how we know God, the center of God's work in the world, the center of our salvation. If you, if you like me, um, have been a Christian for many years, I'm guessing it's quite unlikely that you would deny that. I don't meet very many Christians who will say, ah, Jesus, kind of cool, but uh, we all know if we're Christians, if we've been Christians for a while, that Jesus is at the center. So then the question is, is he really, though? Is he really, though? When it comes down to it, when it comes down to um, your conversations with, with mates who aren't Christians, how much do you talk about God? Like this nice anonymous God who we can all get on with. Isn't it much more difficult to talk about Jesus, the God who is visible, who breaks into our world and demands a difference from us? I honestly find that more difficult personally. Or in our worship, I worry that um, sometimes our worship is directed to God the holy cloud, this kind of faceless mm, God. Looks a bit like the force. But the God we worship is the God revealed in Jesus. If he's not central to our worship, and our worship is misdirected. There's loads of ways this can happen. Can I just say, I think reading the Gospels is a fantastic thing to do regularly. Because it prevents Jesus from becoming just a doctrine, just a slogan, just an idea. We have the real, living person of Jesus there in front of us. <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but I find that reading the Gospels again and again pushes through my sort of religious hardening. Let me explain what I mean by that. We do religious things. There's no point pretending that we don't because we're doing them right now. And it is so easy for those things that we do to become set and to become the way we relate to God. How do you relate to God? Go to church on a Sunday. Get up, read my Bible in the morning. All great. But potentially having nothing whatsoever to do with the living and powerful Lord Jesus. He crashes through all of that. He doesn't say all those things are invalid any more than he said fasting and Sabbath observance were invalid. He just says, me, 
It is about me. I am your bridegroom. I am your lover. I am your king and lord. And if all this isn't about him, then we should just pack up and go now. We should pack up, stack up the chairs, and go. And here is a way that we will know. Here is a way that we can tell if it is all about him. And it is joy. It is joy. It is a miserable thing to be the sort of person who has to be checking up on other people's Sabbath observance. Because that, we think, is what makes it with God. It is a joyful thing to know that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and gives us rest. Rest from all our futile efforts to try to earn God's favor because he has earned it for us. Rest even just from the normal everyday effort to survive because he promises to provide for us as we trust in him. Jesus gives joy and rest. Hardened religion gives us rotors and a list of things to do. So let's trust in Jesus, shall we? Because I think it's going to be better. I honestly do. Anyone else?